As always, we're certainly delighted that God has seen fit to bless us with the opportunity to assemble on this Lord's Day morning. It's certainly a marvelous matter to remind ourselves that this first day of the week is that day spoken of in the pages of God's New Testament, reminding us of that particular day in which the saints gathered in Acts 20, verse 7. And they did so, of course, with a desire and an interest to do that which was the bidding of the God of heaven. You and I, as we come together today, also appreciate that blessing is ours. And thus, we have been able to do that which faithful saints through many centuries now have also joined in blessed singing, the offering of prayers, the study of God's holy word, as well as we assemble around the table and give as we've been prospered later. As you notice on the slide today, we'll be looking at the resurrection of our Master. As we do that, we certainly will continue a series of lessons that has occupied our attention on the first Sundays of each of the months of this year. We set before ourselves back early in the year the thought that on the first Sunday of the month, we would reflect upon a particular aspect of the life of our Lord, calling attention to it, drawing applications from it, and using them to motivate our faith to even greater heights in the reality of the message of the wonderful Word of God. And so on that slide, I've listed for you a number of the particulars we've already considered. We've reflected on His birth. We cast a spotlight upon His baptism in Matthew chapter 3. We followed that with a discussion of the various temptations of chapter 4, the transfiguration of chapter 17, the crucifixion, and then the burial. But certainly that brings in many ways the next issue for immediate thought would be the resurrection. And that's the topic of our study today. At the top of that slide, I at least listed a, a song that motivated us for this particular series. More about Jesus would I know. More of His grace to others show. As often as we sing that, our desire to know more about the Lord and to have a keener appreciation of it for our lives today would certainly be a great blessing. What about the resurrection then? You and I know the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John will cast a rather immediate spotlight on the reality of that resurrection. And so today, as we journey through some of those texts, we will visit them, and it all begins with this next slide. What might we say, using the Word of God, to speak about the resurrection of our Master? First of all, as we come to John the 19th chapter, verses 39 and following, you and I will recall what a tremendous scene of events had already been cast as they had taken our Lord to that place of Golgotha, they had nailed Him to the cross at 9 o'clock that Thursday morning. As the hours of that day passed on, we soon found that the darkness came across the land from the noonday hour. But yet the text says that our Lord passed on. He gave up the Spirit, gave up the ghost, and He died at 3 o'clock that afternoon. At that point, you and I noticed then that a rather remarkable scene of events had already happened. And the darkness over the land reminded us of what a sad choice the human family had made to put to death the only perfect one that had ever lived. The greatness of God in the flesh, Matthew 1, 21. The reminder of, in fact, He had left the great portals of glory in John 17, verses 1 to 3. And He had tabernacled here in the flesh, John 1, 14. And in so doing, they nonetheless had taken this one who had done nothing but good, and they'd killed him. However, as the events of that Thursday afternoon unfold, we noticed that there was immediately a reminder 
that the high day was approaching. And so, as you and I recall, they were interested in hastening the death of these three who had been crucified, Jesus and the two thieves. And thus, in that 19th chapter, you and I remember the Roman soldier came and pierced the side of Christ, intending, it would seem, to, to break the legs of all who were not already dead. And yet Jesus had already passed on. Isn't it a reminder that the burden that our Lord had carried brought Him to death in six hours on the cross. That surely is a monumental matter when you and I remember that He carried your sins and mine to this place. You'll notice next on that slide is this reminder. As dark as things may have seemed on that Thursday afternoon, you and I arrive at Sunday morning, and we find that the women who there had already been some preparation of the body Remember, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had made some arrangements. And in that 19th chapter of John, you and I recall that they apparently had been done in haste and the women came early on that Sunday morning, desirous of not only continuing those matters, but we notice when they arrive. In Luke 24, verse number 1, they found that the body wasn't there. The body wasn't there. You and I read that, and I hope we never allow ourselves to pass by the words too quickly as if it's a fact we already know. It's a wonderful fact to behold, but might we never cease to reflect upon it, the significance that goes with it, the reality of arriving at a place where a corpse had been laid, and the corpse is not there, not because someone had stolen it, not because some evil person who had, shall we say, matters in mind, went off and took it for a mean prank or a joke. It's the fact he had been resurrected. It's the fact that he had been raised back to life never to die again. And in that thought, the next thought on that slide is this one. You and I notice in texts such as Acts one twenty-two, and Acts 17 verse 32, he had been resurrected. The interesting thing is you and I noticed some of those who were in conversation. You may remember that those women were certainly surprised. They had not expected that. Just as no doubt you and I would not expect to arrive at some cemetery today when we had seen a corpse placed there just a few days earlier suddenly to find it gone. One of the last thoughts on that slide then is this, that unusual character the absolute sweetness of that thought surely reminds us that Jesus had foretold about His resurrection. He had laid the groundwork of it, but not only Him. Old Testament prophets had said things about it. It was the case that the great plan of God pointed in the direction of the marvelous matter of that, of that resurrection. Could I direct your attention to Mark the 16th chapter? I mentioned earlier that we might visit a few of these gospel accounts relative to this event. Would you appreciate Mark chapter 16, verses 8 and following? I'll begin reading really in verse number 1, since it will not only remind us of some of that which we've noted, but it will cast a spotlight on an interesting observation. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And so these women were desirous of now arriving to further anoint and make final preparations for the body of Jesus. 
And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. And he said unto them, Be not afraid, be not affrighted. Ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. You can imagine then these visitors who were having conversation with the women, they point out, look at where he was laid. You seek Jesus. Notice, there was an identification of exactly the one they saw. They did not go to the wrong tomb. Over the years, there have been a lot of accusations that the women got confused, went to the wrong place. Jesus had been there, the body that is. And in so doing, they go on to say, Something about the fact that the women were affrighted, that's certainly understandable. They were somewhat surprised and shocked. But now verse 7 gives them an order. Go your way, tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him, as he said unto you. And thus the reminder was to them in the very same way that the Lord himself had spoken about this, you, they, are now going to see Him. And so it was the women in verse 8 reacted like this. They went out quickly and fled from the sepulcher, for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. At that point, the book of Mark brings us to note that fear had gripped a number of those. Their leader was gone. And now this strange remark about his body not being evident, not being where it was, it caused an unsettled spirit. There was a fear that gripped others. And now you notice verse number 9. Now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. And she went and told them that had been with him as they mourned and wept. And they, when they had heard that, he was alive and had been seen of her, believed not. The first reports. As Mary Magdalene, then John gave us more details somewhat about this. But remember that there had been, Jesus appeared to her and in conversation, she first thought he was the gardener. And then, you notice that she brought word of what she had now experienced. And the text says at first they didn't believe it. At first, they were not convinced. It is at that point, as you and I close that slide, could we not remember that the Lord Himself had said things like in Luke 18, verses 33 and following. In Luke's great account wherein He journeyed toward Jerusalem for the final time, He pointed out that when the Son of Man arrives, the Gentiles, those who in fact are against Him in that regard, that He Himself would be taken of them. He would be put to death, but that he would rise again. Do you wonder what those apostles first thought when they heard him say something like this? The rising of again, what does that mean? As often as the Lord had made teachings on that point, now don't you know that things had been brought back to their memory? 
I remember him saying that. I remember him, in fact, emphasizing this, that he would be smitten of those in that city, that he would be put to death by those in that place, but that on the third day he would rise again. And don't you know, as they had counted, today's the third day. The time had arrived. No doubt certain pieces, at least in part, began to fall into place. There would still be issues that they would need to be teaching. But as you close that slide with me, you and I now living approximately 20 centuries this side of that set of events. Doesn't it bring us to memory? And doesn't it cause us to reflect on the gospel? May I ask you to notice the first four verses of 1 Corinthians 15. When the gospel is described, we find a portion of that description not only casts a spotlight on our study today, but places it in the following context. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. And so it was that as Paul began that what we would call the 15th chapter of the 1st Corinthian letter, he says, I'm talking about the gospel. And now he identifies, he elaborates, by which also you're saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. Paul is thus describing the gospel, asserting that that's what had been preached to them, that they needed to believe it, but not in vain. But he highlighted this in verse 3. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. He's still discussing the gospel. That which I had received, what I had preached unto you, but Paul, what is it? How that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. This gospel begins with this reality of Christ that, in fact, He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. But, verse number 4, He was buried. Verse number 4, He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. You may thus notice as the gospel was identified, it was that beautiful and penetrating message that centered on the death, the burial, the resurrection of our Lord. And now you'll notice that twice it was highlighted that it was according to the Scriptures. The God of heaven had by way of the prophets foretold in Old Testament days the reality of these incredible events. As you and I transition from that slide to the next one, we thus begin to highlight the importance, the significance of that resurrection. And no doubt, for just a few moments, many of these thoughts have no doubt crossed our mind before, but to see them put together using some of these issues of our emphasis might bring us to this point. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, you and I know how important Christ's blood is. We know that it's the basis whereby our forgiveness can, in fact, take place. Without the shedding of blood is no remission, Hebrews 9, 22. All of that concept of blood takes us to the crucifixion. And without doubt, you and I lay proper emphasis on the crucifixion. But our subject today is the resurrection. If the blood was connected to the crucifixion, how significant is the resurrection? How vital, how important, how needful? We aren't left long to wonder about that question. In Hebrews 6, verse number 2, the inspired writer pointed out to us that there are certain elementary matters of the faith. 
things which you and I, as we mature in the faith, must master and leave behind because we go on to more, shall we say, advanced or other more mature matters in our faith. But you notice, he said, the resurrection of the dead is a fundamental matter. It's elementary, one of the first things that you and I must appreciate as we regard the matter of Christianity is the understanding that this book teaches the resurrection of the dead and it centers on the fact that Christ Jesus is the very one whose resurrection is so remarkably highlighted and it will serve for the next few moments as the basis for our great appreciation, even more so about that too. As you notice that resurrection, ponder this rather simple thought. You and I know how common death is. Do we not read in texts such as Hebrews 9, 27? It's appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. We really in many ways certainly understand the biblical presentation of the commonality of death, but we also from our experience see it. Our friends, neighbors, loved ones, family members, associates, we recognize the commonplace of death. That's true of great Bible leaders too, it? Noah died. We read about that in the book of Genesis. Abraham died. We read about that. We read about the death of Moses, David, all the others that you can name with the exception of Elijah, at least in regard to him and Enoch in the Old Testament. Death is just that which takes place. Wasn't it true that the psalmist could say in Psalm 90, verses 10 and following, about the fact that if by reason of strength... You and I notice the reference to threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength to fourscore years. Yet we understand the reality of this which we recognize and call death. Again, leaders of the Bible experienced it too. And yet something fascinating here. Jesus died indeed, but He didn't stay dead. There was a resurrection of which we speak today. Could you and I pause long enough to notice the Lord had said in Matthew 24 that there would be false Christs. That is to say, others who would make the claim to being of God. Could I be quick to point out, those guys when they did, when they died, they weren't resurrected. There was something unique about the Lord. What is it that proved Him finally to be who He said He was? What is it that offered the uncontested proof that He, in fact, was the very one from heaven, the Messiah of God, and the one that said forward exactly that which He claimed to be? Well, surely you can easily imagine the events of the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. When Peter and the eleven stood up in verse number 14 and began to speak, don't you know that when they arrived through the discussion of this Jesus that you know about, He died, and they wouldn't have disagreed with that. But He arrived at a point and said, God raised Him up. Shouldn't all of us reflect upon the fact that all that the adversaries would have had to do is say, Hold it a minute. I can take you to where His body is. Everything you're saying, that can't be true. But they never said that. 
even though there were those that didn't agree with it, they at least couldn't say that we have proof that he is that he was not the Messiah. We have proof that what you're saying about a resurrection wasn't so. That body wasn't found. As you and I give thought to that appreciation here, isn't that something that takes us to Romans 1 verse 4? That was the lesson text read in our hearing earlier today. May I invite you to listen as I read it again. One of the opening proclamations of the book of Romans. I'll begin reading in verse 3. Concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. That verse 4 reminds us that this Jesus, who was of the lineage of David, that's what verse 3 reminds us, but then it says, He was declared to be the Son of God. How so? By His words? That's not what the text says. He was declared to be the Son of God, ultimately and finally by His resurrection from the dead. That was the thing that gave us the final proof the final attestation, if you will, about the nature that He was who He said He was. The resurrection from the dead. You'll notice about the middle of that slide then. That text in Romans 1 isn't the first time we'd seen that. You might recall on the first missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas had at least reminded us of, some, of something similar to that in Acts 13. When they, with boldness, preached in that region of Asia Minor, about the nature of the Lord's resurrection and how that, that offered proof, it offered evidence for the nature of His Messiahship. The amazing thing, you see, about the Lord's resurrection is of what it brings to you and me as well today, a lively hope, a living hope, in the words of 1 Peter 1 verse 3. And that living hope is what is magnified. It's what is encouraged in you and I. Our hope is not dead. Isn't it true that Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ Jesus, we are of all men most miserable. And so our hope extends far beyond the grave in that we know that this life, while here in the flesh, is only a taste of of what we look forward to hereafter. Don't you know that that invites us to reflect upon the resurrection as well? Isn't it true that even baptism is another powerful way in which we appreciate the Bible's teaching on this wonderful subject? For didn't Peter write it this way in 1 Peter 3.21, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, baptism has its power only because of the Lord's resurrection. Just as He came forth from that actual tomb, you and I come forth from a watery grave to live a new life as a new creature in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. It might well be in that light. Why don't we then use those matters as a background to come to this next slide in which we draw just a few brief observations about this issue of the resurrection. I hope it will be a great fortitude to each of us in light of our faith. First of all, point number one, the resurrection of Jesus is a fact. 
I know that there have been those through the ages who have offered up various and sundry supposed explanations for why the body wasn't found. Some have said that the apostle stole it. Some have said that, well, he never really died to start with. All of that is simply untrue. Whether one looks at it from the perspective of what, that which we've noted today, or even a number of other considerations that might be made, the resurrection of our Lord was stated as a straightforward fact in Acts 2.24. It was stated di as directly in 1 Corinthians 15. You and I might well then notice that to call that into question is not only unwise, it's just plain wrong. The Word of God does make note in 2 Timothy 2 about some who perverted the doctrine of the resurrection and their faith had become shipwrecked. Don't you love that terminology? Point number two would be this. In addition to the truthful, factual character of the resurrection, what confidence you and I can have in the matter of it. I decided to put that one as a separate point for this reason. You and I then mustn't be ashamed of the resurrection. It happened. And because it happened to the Lord, you and I understand it's exactly what Jesus had said, that I am the resurrection and the life in John 11, verses 24 and following. And that connection to baptism thus instills in you and I a degree of confidence in light of obedience to the gospel of our Lord. The truthfulness, the confidence of it. What about point number three? Could I ask you to notice this issue of justification? I say it that way because that's the way the Apostle Paul mentioned it. Justification in Romans 4 verse 25. That is the last verse in that chapter. But it's certainly worthy of our reflection in the following way. The first part of it likely comes as no surprise to us. But allow me to read it if I might. Romans chapter 4 verse number 25. Speaking about Jesus, it says, "...who was delivered for our offenses." Now that part of the verse is so easy to understand, isn't it? For our offenses, He was delivered. He went to the cross. He, in fact, endured the agony and the terrible death connected to that which was due to our offenses. But then the latter part of the verse says, "...and was raised again for our justification." And so the Lord's resurrection, the Lord's rising, is said to be for our justification. I've invited you to consider that in light of the verse before us. As we discuss the resurrection, you and I might ask, according to what Paul proclaimed, our just standing before Him hinges on the reality of the resurrection. Again, Aren't we reminded that that resurrection proved without a doubt that He was the Son of God and thus that His death was exactly the one for our offenses and that we could be made free from sin through Him for our justification. That doctrine of justification is often mentioned in the Roman letter and yet here we appreciate its connection to the resurrection of our Lord. The last point, point number four, makes this immediately personal to each of us. What about your resurrection and mine? At one point in our study today, we've noted death is so common. It'll come to you and me too if the Lord delays His coming. But you and I have the absolute hope 
and the absolute assurance that we are not going to remain in that grave perpetually. We're going to come forth. Didn't Jesus say it like this in John 5, verses 28 and following? Marvel not at this. For the hour is coming when all that are in the grave shall hear His voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. You and I realize the grave is not the end. But as those in Christ, we look forward to that beautiful resurrection into life in which we appreciate the far better, sweeter, greater reality of being with our Lord forevermore one day in the sweet climb of heaven. The idea of a resurrection should instill within us a desire to be faithful, a desire to be a servant to the Lord. In fact, among the verses I've asked you to consider, there is this one. In 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 20, there are many that would immediately recognize that to be the resurrection chapter of the New Testament. And perhaps without a doubt, we find so much that encourages us in that place. But I'd like to begin reading in that 20th verse and just notice how the Lord's resurrection is used to encourage a great deal of truth in our understanding. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, but every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. That reading through verse 23 thus reminds us that Christ was the firstfruits. His resurrection was a guarantee on the part of God that each shall enjoy that which we call a resurrection. But isn't it true we want to be a part of that resurrection to life? The resurrection unto judgment is too horrible to contemplate. As you and I close that particular slide, our reflections today on the resurrection have truly been a reminder that this event, the factual resurrection of our Lord, is something in which we can have the utmost of confidence and use it as a basis, as the Bible teaches, for so many things such as justification and the guarantee of our own resurrection as well. The conclusion of this lesson is simply what I've attempted to briefly rehearse on this slide, and it's just a gentle reminder that you and I should think carefully and blessedly about the resurrection. And if you and I would desire to be those that would be resurrected to life, that which we must do is hinged upon that which the Lord did. As we obey the gospel, understanding that that, belay, that belief and repentance and confession leads to that event, that particular act in which we make contact and allow the blood of Christ to flow over our soul, cleansing those sins, so that we can rise from that grave of baptism and do so knowing that we're in fellowship with the Lord and that we are a member of that blessed body known as the church. It might be today as we each give thought to these matters of the resurrection, isn't it a remarkable statement about how that God before time in the Old Testament days spoke about the event that we have studied today. In Psalm 16, for example, as well as other verses, we are reminded that God knew this was going to take place 
and it has served as such a great teaching idea for you and me today. As we offer the Lord's invitation at this time, we do that in the following way, and for this reason, it's always a desire, and this is a convenient time. Jesus wants everybody to be saved, but He allows us to make our own choice, our own decision. If there's someone in this assembly that's never named the sweet name of Jesus as your Savior, won't you give careful thought to the reality of what happened, not only in the crucifixion, but in the beauty and power of that resurrection? Would you not rush to His faithful side today? You do that as you believe in Him as the Son of God, repenting of your sins. Confess His matchless name as the Son of God and be buried in baptism. We today would be honored to assist, to help, if you have known that way of life in Christ. But perhaps over time you've wandered away from that fold of safety. You've begun to dwell in a, not only an unsafe place, but a lost place. Jesus still wants you back. He wants you as a faithful servant of His. And today we'd be honored to encourage and assist you if you would make confession of those sins, repentance of them. We'd be honored to pray to our God. That's, in fact, what was done in Acts, the 8th chapter, and we would certainly desire simply to do that with you today. If we could be of help in either of these ways, it'd be our desire to extend that invitation and offer our assistance at this time while together we stand and while we sing.